Thank you so much for joining us today for our LifePoint podcast. At LifePoint, we believe everyone's welcome, nobody's perfect, and with God, anything's possible. Hope you enjoy. Good morning, everybody. How are you? There we go. A little bit better. A little bit better. Uh, we are so glad you're here today. My name is Danny Rivers, and I'm one of the pastors here uh, around here at LifePoint. Uh, as you guys are well aware, it is Time Change Sunday, and it is also spring break. And what that means for churches all across America is it's just us singing Kumbaya, holding hands in a small group. Uh, not, not really. It was like, what? No, no, we're not going to make you do that. It's just the smallest weekend of the year. And, uh, and, but you guys are here, and you're fired up. I hope you're you fired up. Everybody fired up to be here? Yeah. You're a little more tired than you usually are, but it's going to be good. You can take a nap later on. But thank you so much uh, for making it out on this weekend. It's a tough weekend for a lot of places, but we're so glad you're here. And welcome, welcome, welcome. Hey, one couple, 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 couple things. Um, I'm missing an hour of sleep too, y'all. Um, uh, so in response to um, some, some growing media and kind of uh, fear mongering, we as a church, uh, as a team, pastors, uh, trustees, leaders, we've made some decisions just um, to, in, out of respect to people's feelings and, and how things are going into the seriousness of, a, of this corona thing. I know Pastor Jordan just made a, a funny joke about that, um, but uh, there's a lot of folks who are really afraid of that. And so what we've decided to do as a church is to do what we already do, which is have, we have cleaning crews who come here every week, a professional cleaning crew come and sanitize, wipe things down. But also during the week, we've had teams uh, in, in the building uh, from our own teams, sanitizing, cleaning. Every service, people are out there right now. I promise you there are people out there right now wiping down surfaces just to make sure that we're doing everything we can. Here's our, here's our posture, though. We trust God in all of these things. We trust God 100% in all of these things. And, and at the same time, we're going to do um, what the, the, the CDC and all those folks, the medical people, are recommending. So what we love to do around here is bump fist, high five, hug, shake hands, and so we've asked our team, and some of us are still not quite getting it ready. I've hugged so many people already today, even though I sent out texts this week to all of our team going, hey, don't hug anybody this week, and then I hugged them, and they're like, hey, bro, what's up, man? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to do to me, man? Corona me? I'm like, I thought a corona was like some kind of beer from Mexico. What's, anyways, um, that was a bad joke. Um, so we're just going to smile and wave, boys. Smile and wave. Madagascar, anybody? Smile and wave, boys. Um, and then this too shall pass, and we will all get back to normal. But thank you guys so much for uh, cooperating with us, and we really, really appreciate that. Hey, couple, two, two more things. One is a big announcement. Um, you can't tell it today because it's Time Change Sunday and it's spring break, but we are out of room already in our new facility. Uh, if you've been here the last few weeks, especially if you've been in this service, again, not today, but in this service, we've been at 100% capacity or 95% capacity all the three weeks of this, which means that there, if you walk in with a family of three or four or five, you have to split up to sit together, and how many of you know that's not cool, and so uh, our third service is also just as, almost just as packed. Our first service has got some room in it, but it's got room because it's early, and folks don't want to come to it, so we've decided to respond to growing parking stuff. We're going to build more parking. Uh, We thought that was like, hey, that'll do for now, but it's not, and uh, we're going to add a service. Uh, We're going to add a fourth service, uh, we knew this was coming. We just didn't think it was going to happen this fast. So March the 28th, everybody say March the 28th at 5 o'clock. And that is a Saturday, by the way. We're going to bring our Saturdays back for those of you who love that service. A lot of folks love that service. We did that in the fall for a little while. We're going to bring that back as long as we need to. And then uh, we'll figure out what to do from there. 
uh, maybe a new building across the parking lot. So uh, most of you don't know this. Maybe you do. This is phase one. This will be a kid's building in phase two, and then we'll build a much larger auditorium just across this little gap right here. Uh, but until then, we got to make the best of this one, and we're grateful for this one, everybody. We're really, really grateful. Thank you for that. So we're going to add fourth service, 5 o'clock on su uh, Saturdays. And then Easter's, Easter's is coming. Easter's, anybody? Easter's is coming. And uh, we'll have a Friday uh, at 7, uh, which will be Good Friday, communion, that whole bit. But it's the same service as all the other ones. Saturday at 5 and 6.30, and Sunday at 8.45, uh, 10.15, sorry, and 11.45. Six uh, worship opportunities during e Easter's. You can start inviting people to that right now, and it'll be, it's going to be awesome. We, and then we're going to have our grand opening on the 5th, 4th uh, and 5th, sorry, the 4th and the 5th. And it'll be a lot of fun as well. All right, you guys ready to get going here? Thank you. Three, two people are ready to get going. We're in a series that we're calling Chapter and Verse. At LifePoint, we tend to think in terms of series. Certain series are designed for certain uh, audiences, meaning that we're here for everybody, but some of them are designed for certain groups of folks that we're either trying to reach or connect with or whatever. This particular series, um, Chapter and Verse, is, is a... It's a series that is designed to grind, uh, ground us and root us in God's word. So we dig a little deeper. So I want you to get your Bibles if you have them, if you have them on your phone or wherever, however you have it, if you have an actual Bible. Some of you have forgotten what they look like. They're, they're usually pretty thick and uh, they're awesome. Uh, we're going to, by the way, if you missed pa uh, Pastor Andy's message last Sunday on Psalm 23, it was an unbelievable message and I highly recommend that you go to our podcast or our website and listen to that. It'll, it'll help you, I promise it'll help you. Today we're pulling up to chapter two of a book called Galatians. I wanna give you a little bit of a background on this because it's so important to the book of Galatians that you understand why it was written. The letter is to the churches around Galatia. It's penned by a na man named Paul. Oh, by the way, we have the kids in the room with us today. G can you give all the kiddos a, a big welcome, everybody? Thank you for being in here, guys. Paul, before Paul was Paul, he was known as Saul. He was a deeply religious Jewish man steeped in the traditions of a very strict sect called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were committed to the Jewish traditions uh, uh, and the laws of the Old Testament, including laws that were not actually orchestrated or introduced to, to them by God, but were created by man. And he's very committed to these traditions until... One day, Saul's life is transformed when Jesus, having risen from the dead, uh, confronts him on a road called to, to a place called Damascus where he is on his way to persecute Christians, to imprison them, and perhaps even to kill some of them. He is converted by a blinding light. He becomes a follower of Jesus. Saul becomes Paul, because God often does that. He gives people new names. He miraculously goes from hating Jesus to loving Jesus, from seeing Jesus as a false God to seeing Jesus as the only God, and from hating and persecuting Christians to becoming their pastor. So anytime you feel bad about me, just remember, I haven't tried to kill any of you yet. Um, uh, so he goes out. Once he's converted, he goes out, and he starts preaching what God has revealed to him, uh, he preaches the gospel. He, churches are getting planted all over that part of the world. On, on a particular, he goes to a particular region called Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey, and he, he preaches the gospel to these groups of people. They form a church. Uh, he goes out, 
and from, he loves this church. He loves the churches that he's, 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 he's built, but he goes out to start and spread more churches all across their area that had been unchurched, and sometime after he leaves Galatia, a group of Jewish Christians um, known as Judaizers comes behind him from Jerusalem into this region claiming to speak for Peter and James and the original uh, disciples, apostles. We read, we read their story in Acts chapter 15. And over time, as they come into this town called Galatia, they start to tell these Galatians that Paul was not a real apostle, that he had not, in fact, preached to them the complete gospel. In particular, they told these young Galatians converts that they were obliged to not just follow the teachings of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus, but to keep the Jewish uh, cultural customs that were part of the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, that included dietary laws about what they could eat, what they couldn't eat, that included circumcision, and then the rest of the ceremonial law, if, if they don't do this, they're not saved, they're not pleasing to God. Now, this came as a disconcerting shock to them since circumcision was essentially a Jewish practice connected with the Old Testament law. So just so you can understand, one day they're at church, they're gathering, they're not Jewish people, they're, they're like us, they're non-Jews, they've just found out about Jesus and the gospel, and one day these guys show up and say, hey, like out back we got this surgeon with a scalpel and all of the grown men in the room who have not yet had this happen, welcome to Life Point. Imagine if we did this, it'd be like, Babe, I don't care how good the coffee is. We're, not go we're gonna go to a different church, right? Come on. Kids are in the room. Parents, you're welcome. You can explain that to them later on. Circumcision and all. <laughs> you're welcome, you know? I just try to do what I can to help conversations roll in your house. Galatians is in large part about two things. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of grace. And the freedom, this is paramount, the freedom that is found in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Galatians, Paul, in chapter 1, Paul argues that, that there's only one gospel, and if you tweak it in any way, it actually ceases to become the gospel. And so he's arguing against these false teachers who've come behind him, who've come saying it takes more than Jesus to be saved, that it's Jesus plus Moses, and that equals salvation, and so he's reminding them uh, of grace and the gospel of grace. So I want to I get to work there in Galatians chapter 2 this morning, and I gave you all of that foundation because I might come back and teach more of this next week, so I just want you to know what Galatians is about. So, so that you understand what's happening in Galatians chapter 2, at one point, Paul is recounting an argument that he had had with another pillar of the church, a guy named Peter. Peter is from Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem. This is the sort of Mecca of Christianity, and Peter is in charge of the original movement. So Paul had gone back to Jerusalem to have a conversation with Peter and the other leaders, and in that conversation, he's like, hey, listen, listen. God's Spirit is being poured out. The Holy Spirit is being poured out on people not Jewish. And you need, to get, you need to come to grips with that, and you need to understand that this is God's plan. And Peter had, in fact, come to grips with that, and he, was, he, was, he, had, he, had, he had embraced the gospel of grace with Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers, but when it came to his peers, his Jewish peers, he would sort of be like, not so much that, and he would go back to the law, and he was kind of flip-flopping about this, and Peter and Paul gets up into his face and says, listen, man, you gotta stop that. This is 
this is it. It's Jesus only. We don't need the law of Moses to save people. And so he, in this passage, he starts to recount the argument that he, happened, he has with Peter. Verse 11, he starts it. Verse 14, he actually begins to quote what he said to Peter. And this is where we pick up in verse 15. This is part of the conversation that he had had with Peter. Verse 15, he says, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. And by the way, that's me and you. <laughs> you're welcome. Paul's like saying, hey, sinful Gentiles. That's you and I. Okay, you're welcome. Just want to encourage you today uh, in the faith. No, know that a person is not could you say not, is not justified by the works of the law. He's talking about the Mosaic law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified, say this part with me, by faith in Christ and not, say not, by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. All right, I need you to put your thinking caps on. We're going to dive a little deeper today. Now, what he's saying here is that Jewish people by birth have an advantage, had an advantage over the Gentiles, and the advantage was that they had the law of Moses. They also had, the law of Moses was given to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. They also had the prophets, and we didn't get the prophets. The back half of your Old Testament, you'll see it's like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, prophets, right? Lesser-known prophets are called minor prophets, Malachi, all of those people, right? The Jews had a covenant. The Jews had promises given to them. We, the Gentiles, we didn't get that. And that's what he means here in verse 15, and he clears this up. He, he, he adds weight to this in other parts of his writings. But if you read in verse 16, his attitude towards that advantage that the Jews had is, so what? So what? Right? Because as it turns out, the law, according to Paul, doesn't justify anyone. Even though they had been given this advantage, it didn't help. It didn't justify anyone. They had the law from the beginning. It made no difference because they could not, pay attention now, they could not live up to the standards of the law, the requirements, the sort of righteous requirements of the law. They couldn't do it. And he says this great line, we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ. Now, if you have a real Bible in your hand, you should underline that, put a square around it, point arrows to it, asterisks, whatever doodles that you do, put them there now because this is central to the Christian faith right here, this word, justified by faith. It's a nutshell summary of the gospel. Remember that when Paul is using this argument, with, uh, is using this in an argument with Peter, uh, and the essence of the quarrel with Peter is, who's, quote, clean and who's, quote, not clean. Uh, because in their world, the Jewish world, they would not eat with Gentiles because the Gentiles were unclean. And you had to be clean to come to God's house to worship God. And in their worldview, you got clean by uh, your observation of the religious tenets and the rules of the Jewish faith system. And so Paul is saying, listen, listen, whether you're Jew or whether you're a Gentile, um, you and I were called to come to faith by Jesus, and we didn't call him, he called us, and God accepted you and me as we are despite our 
quote, uncleanness, despite our unworthiness, that this is what's been done through the gospel, that Jesus says, on your behalf, I'm coming down there to make you clean, to make you whole. I'm gonna accept you just as you are. And this is the order of the gospel. God accepts us while we're sinners, while we're unclean. He dies on our behalf, and then we follow him, and as we follow him, he starts making us clean, and that process is called sanctification. Other religious systems have it in reverse. Follow God, obey all the rules, get cleaned up, then he accepts you. And Galatians is written in part to remind people that, that the order of the gospel, reminding even Peter, who was a, who was a, a, a monster figure in the, the faith system, that, that, we, we had it in re, that they have it in reverse. So he says, we're justified solely by our faith in Christ, period. And, and the opposite of being justified is being condemned, all right? So justified or justification is a legal term, and condemned is also a legal term, right? And, And what Paul is saying is that the law, he says it all throughout the text, the law condemns us, that, that we are condemned by the law. Like, look at the law, compare yourself to the law, and know that you're not good enough. You're not going to ever be good enough. You're not clean. The law is a judge, and what is said about Danny Rivers, probably not you because you guys are all awesome and perfect, but what it says about Danny Rivers is that I'm guilty, and I can't do anything about my guilt. That's what it says. And that was the purpose of the law. Jesus, uh, Paul calls it a a schoolmaster. It's it's a teacher. But the law is only a diagnostic tool. It is not a cure. So let me give you a for instance here. I've used this illustration before. Several years ago, uh, I had been having problems for years with my kidneys, but no one could figure out what was wrong with my kidneys. And so I go to a new guy. He's like, house, right? This guy is like, immediately, he walks in. He doesn't introduce himself. He says, hey, you have FSGS, focular segmental glomular sclerosis okay what does that mean um and he says i'm going to do a biopsy to prove it and so a few weeks later i'm laying on my stomach and he pounds this giant straw-sized needle into my back it was pleasant it was really pleasant and then they pulled out three squiggly little pieces of my of my kidneys and dropped it into a dish and he's like hey this is what we're going to test and he shows it to me i was like I don't need to see that right now, my man. You just inflicted pain on me. Get away, you know, from me. Evildoer, worker of iniquity. <laughs> Old Testament, you know what I'm saying? Old Testament today. They come, I come back a few days later. The diagnostic tool says, you have FSGS. You have kidney disease. Well, now what? What do I do now? That's exactly what I ask him. The good news is now I know for the first time in 10 years what I'm dealing with. But this diagnostic does not cure me. So now I need somebody to help me deal with it because I cannot deal with this on my own. And this is what the law does. The law lets us know something is wrong, but the law does not solve what it shows us is wrong with us. So how many of you know, those of you who are new to San Antonio, we do this thing every year called Fiesta, and it's coming at us soon, and it is bad to the bone, hardcore, right? Like New Orleans has Mardi Gras, sin, deprivation, evil. Come on. But in San Antonio, we have Fiesta, praise be to Jesus. (laughs) But it is a good excuse for one week to party and to eat lots of food that is awesome and terrible for us all at once. But because we pray, Jesus takes all of the badness away from it. And sorry, that's not actually true. So imagine, this could actually happen, imagine you're walking down the Riverwalk, you and the 10 other thousand people on the Riverwalk at one time. 
but you see a drunk man, this could happen very, very easily at Fiesta, falling into the river, and he's falling around, and he's drowning. He won't drown because it's only three feet deep, but just pretend like it's deeper than that. Uh, and he's flailing around, and, and what do you do to him? You're like, hey, moron, you shouldn't get drunk. It's a sin. What's wrong with you, man? Right? Meanwhile, the guy's drowning, right? Pretend he's drowning, right? Or, or let's say you, you go one better, and you give him a book, right? You throw him a manual about how to rescue a drunk guy from the river walk. Not helpful, right? Not helpful at all. You, you don't throw him some teachings, you throw him a rope, or better yet, you jump in and you drag him to shore. Come on, somebody, you with me now? So the diagnostic tool, the law says, you're condemned, you're drowning in the river, but Jesus comes along, comes from heaven, and jumps into the river, who pays the price for my forgiveness, for my sins, for my healing, for my freedom, and then, after he's risen from the dead, he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Woo! Romans chapter 8, verse 1, by the way. We're going to go there, by the way, because I can't avoid Romans chapter 8, greatest chapter in all the Bible, in my opinion. So let's think about this word justified that Paul has used here. Justification, in an overly simplistic way, could be described like this. Just as if I never sinned. Or, I would say even better, just as if I've always obeyed, which, by the way, I haven't. And some of you have, I, I guess, but most of us know we haven't always obeyed. In, in justification, the sinner stands before God, accused by the law, accused by our past, accused by our mistakes, accused by our adversary, the devil. But instead of being condemned, you, are, you and I are declared righteous, just as if I never sinned, right, right standing with God. It would be like if I had broken the law, and I go in my orange jumpsuit in cuffs, and I go before the judge, and I'm standing there waiting for him to tell me, and he says, Mr. Danny Rivers, right? Yes, yes, sir. Why are you here? Well, I, I broke the law. I, I did some bad stuff. Well, we can't find a record of that anywhere in here, um, and, and so you're, 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 whatever your debt should have been to society, it's been so deeply expunged from the record book that there is no record of any wrong ever having been committed on, on your part. So it's, ju it's just as if I never sinned. It's just as though I've always obeyed. If you are justified, your record is clean, and your record is clear, and you are free to go about your life and business. That's justification, right? Let's take it further for another minute. There is a parable that Jesus tells, probably the most famous of the parables. It's a parable called the parable of the prodigal son. Raise your hand if you've ever heard the parable of the prodigal son. Most of you have, right? This is a son who runs away from home, takes his dad's money, runs away, spends it all in riotous living, makes a mess of his life, finds himself in a pig pen, which for the Jewish mind is the worst possible place to ever find yourself. And, and he has this epiphany, and he says, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to go back to my father's house. And repentance, which is what, he, what is being described in, in the text, brings the prodigal son back home. But, but to illustrate justification, the father is waiting at the end of the road. The son knows what he deserves, justice. And so look what he says. He says, and he's rehearsing this. This is the lines that he's rehearsing. This is what I'm going to say when I get to my father. Verse 18, I will set out, Luke 15, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven 
and against you, I am no longer worthy, say worthy with me, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me, you should underline that, make me like one of your hired men. What he deserves is justice. No more worthy to be called your son, but the father immediately declares him righteous or in right standing with the father. Think, think restored sonship. But remember that even though the father restores him to sonship immediately, he finds his son in a state where he's wearing rags and with the stench of his choices and his lifestyle on him. But the father doesn't leave him with, in his rags and filth. Now he's going to do what his son has asked him. Remember when he says, make me? But he says, make me a servant. But, but, but the father goes one better and makes him a son, right? And here's where that word sanctification comes in, where I, I, I am justified immediately when I say, hey, Lord, I want to come home. I want to be, be back in the Father's house. I'm immediately justified. But now it begins a lifestyle, a process of, of over the time, over my entire life, uh, of being made, made um, more and more and more like Jesus. That's called sanctification, right? And so here's where this is happening. He, he goes one better. He brings out the best robe. He puts the best sandals on him. He, he says, get me a ring, which is a symbol of restored sonship, and he throws the biggest party that anybody's ever seen for him. I found him a mess. I loved him and accepted him into my family right back, just like he was, just as he was, a mess, and I, and I treated him just as though he had never left me, as though he had always done the right thing. That's justification. But now I'm going to leave. I'm not going to leave him the way I found him. I, I love him too much for, them, for that. I'm going to restore him back to his original design that I had for him. I'm going to give him his future back. He wants to be a servant, but I'm going to make him a son. And that's a description of how good our father is. And that is a perfect description of the gospel of Jesus. Can, can you imagine if the father had declared him in right standing, you're my son, I love you. And the son says, thank you, Dad. Now I'm going to go back and live with the pigs and go back doing the same old stuff that I had been doing. That would be crazy, right? The father puts him back in the house, throws the best robe on him, a ring to signify his return to sonship, and, he's never, and, and, and they have a party like he's never known because that's how good and that's how great our father is and that's how big of a deal God says it is when any of his lost sons or daughters come home, heaven throws a party for anyone who's been lost who comes home and he accepts me just as I am in justification, but he loves me too much to leave me that way. And that's a pure miracle of God's grace. The guilty are forgiven. They are pardoned. They are declared righteous while they are still guilty solely, this is what Paul is maintaining, solely on the basis of Christ's death on the cross. And it all starts with this act of being justified by faith, just as if I never sinned. And this amazing gift comes to anyone who will ask for it and receive it by faith. So back to verse 16, Paul repeats this justified idea three times here so we won't miss it. And the, and the essence is that salvation comes to those, pay attention now, salvation comes to those who, who stop trying to save themselves and they start trusting in Jesus to save them. It comes to anybody who stops 
the sort of spin cycle of I got to do more, I got to try harder, I, I'm never worthy, I'm never going to be good enough, I'm, I'm going to keep trying harder and harder. And they stop that and they say, Lord Jesus, I trust you to save me. Salvation comes and Paul says, we too, meaning the Jewish people, meaning the leadership, we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus. Paul wants you to know that even he has done this, Mr. Perfect Religious Guy, and he says, I have to lay down all of my religious accomplishments, which were insane, by the way. If you go read Philippians chapter 3, he lists all of those things that he had done to sort of earn God's favor. If salvation came by keeping all the rules, Paul had it made. He was going to heaven for sure. Then he met Jesus, and everything changed, and once Jesus transformed his life, he looked back at all of his self-righteous law keeping and concluded that it was his words dung manure right compared with the joy of knowing and having a personal relationship with the risen savior jesus christ and all of those things that he tried to do to sort of commend himself to god had utterly failed him they failed not because they were bad not because they were unrighteous but because they could not change his heart because outward obedience and 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 rules abiding and keeping can never change human nature paul needed something that the law could never provide he needed a changed heart a new heart and when he met jesus what the law could not do christ had done for him and rule keeping had produced guilt and and left him dead in the road but when christ enters we get a a a a breath of fresh air that gets blown into our souls we are made brand new not because of what we've done but what jesus christ has done on our behalf amen somebody verse 17 thank you thank you verse 17 and 18 but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, amongst the Gentiles. D- doesn't that mean that Christ's, Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not, he says. He says, if I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. He's talking about Jesus. If Jesus really rebuilt what he destroyed, then he would be a lawbreaker. A minister of sin, he calls him elsewhere. These, these words are a little confusing, and so I want to see if I can uh, maybe bring some light here. Here's Paul's argument. If Christ Jesus has come simply with more rules, then he has not, in fact, as he maintained, come to bring life and liberty and freedom. Because more rules, more law is just another diagnostic tool that tells me I'm really sick, but it doesn't bring me a cure. He, he argues in another place that the, that the law actually taught us how to sin. Like, like until Moses, if you, if you know the Old Testament, there's a point at which God says to Moses, they're out in the wilderness, the people have come out of Egypt, and God's trying to make them a people group. He's trying to make a great nation out of them. Uh, he's given some covenants to Moses, and he says, Moses, come up on the mountain. Leave the people down there. Come up on the mountain. I want to give you some laws. I want to give you some rules. I want to give you some notions. And he writes on, on, a, on a stone tablet the Ten Commandments. So until Moses brought these Ten Commandments down, they didn't even know what was right or wrong, Right? So imagine Moses coming down the mountain, gather around people, he's got this big stone tablet, maybe it was a little stone tablet, I don't know, maybe it was just an iPad, like a fancy stone iPad, I don't know how it worked, all right, Um, and gather around, law number one, commandment number one, I am God, all right, we can get on board with that, 
Number two, and you shall have no other gods beside me. Meanwhile, right behind all the people is a golden calf that they had fashioned and been worshiping. Awkward. You know what I'm saying? Awkward. I don't know why I went high. Awkward. They're like, like, like trying to hide the golden calf, like everybody gather around so he doesn't see it. You shall have no gods beside me. And Paul is saying, now Jesus, when he comes from heaven to earth, he has not come down from that mountain with a new box of rules. Instead, he's coming saying, listen, you tried to be righteous by following the laws, but now I am your righteousness, and I am taking God's wrath for sin from you, and I'm freeing you from the effects of the fall of Adam and Eve, and I am rescuing you from the clutches of sin and death. He's not coming and bringing more accusation, which the law has already done. He's coming and removing accusation he's literally taking it on himself. He's saying, I'm not going to build back up what I just tore down. He doesn't say, I've come to fulfill the law, and now here are some new laws. Since you couldn't keep the first ones, here's some maybe some weaker ones. Because remember, the Old Testament law was as basic as it gets. Do not lie. And yet they, they lied. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. And some of them coveted their neighbor's wife or husband. Ladies, you don't get out of this thing either, right? Come on. It happens, right? So it's just, it's simple. And it's not complex. And what, what, G, what Paul is arguing here and in other places is that if you make Jesus a bringer of new rules, you make him, he says this in his own words, a minister of sin and, a, and condemnation and death. And is Jesus that? He says, absolutely not the text says he's not come to rebuild what he's already torn down this is not why he came and let me show you one more thing here that the law does not that that the law does that jesus does not do the law creates a gap between you and god if you go back which is what the judaizers had been doing to the galatians and you add things to jesus to save you which is fundamentally what paul is fighting about it, it doesn't create freedom It doesn't create confidence in your salvation. It actually takes away your confidence in what Christ has done for you. It actually reopens the gap that Jesus had died. Listen, he had died to close between us and God. And and look, you're looking at a man who for 35 years lived under this dichotomy that I have to keep working harder and harder and harder so I can feel saved, so, but I never felt saved, and I never went to sleep at night resting in the confidence that I'm saved, that I'm chosen, that I'm faithful, that, that I, I have freedom. I never went to sleep like that because I lived under this dichotomy. So, so, so back to my kidney biopsy. The diagnostic tool says, you're sick, Danny. You're really sick, and oh, by the way, he tells me it's incurable what you have. Now, after having heard that, how do you feel, think I felt in that moment, right? Better about my health or worse? Worse, right? Come on, right? It showed me what was wrong, helpful, because I didn't know before that, but said there was no cure, not helpful. I was left with a gap. What do I do now about my health when they say there is nothing that I can do? I have to trust Jesus with my help, health. Do you, do you see how this works? If the law says to you, you're condemned, you're falling short, there's 600 rules, you're not keeping like 597 of them. Come on, somebody, if you're honest, right? 
what do you do? What happens is you feel helpless, you feel vulnerable. If you've been a religious person who grew up in a sort of legalistic tradition, then you're constantly feeling like, I can't do enough. You're constantly trying harder and harder, and, and and the net result of that is feeling more and more vulnerable. So there's a gap, and what do you do with the gap? You trust Jesus. That's it. You trust Jesus. Just for fun this week, I want you to go out today after church and I want you to Google Old Testament laws. And I want you to see if you feel closer to God or feel worse about your salvation. Because listen, if you ate catfish this week, abomination. (laughs) What? Yeah, abomination. If, If you had some nice lobster, hell, you're going to hell. You're welcome. If you got up this morning and had the delicious nectar of bacon, you're going to hell. You're laughing, but it's, it's, it's actually in there, by the way. It's abomination before the Lord. Catfish is an abomination before the Lord. Right, right? You're like, it's, it's, go, Google it, Google it. Now, after you do that, after you've read a few of those and you see... Uh, I broke that rule, broke that rule, I broke that. Are you going to feel closer or farther away from God, right? What you'll feel if you don't understand the gospel is a growing gap between what God requires and who you are on your own, standing apart from grace. So the law will continually create space between you and God, and what Jesus has done is that he has said, I will fill the space between you and God. I will close the gap, and I will become your your advocate with the Father. I will stand in the gap. I will make intercession. The Holy Spirit will make intercession on yours and my behalf with the Father. And Jesus becomes this great reconciler. He reconciles you to God. He takes things that are in opposition. He takes things that are apart. And you can read the book of Ephesians where he talks about, hey, you were this and you were that. And there was Jews and Gentiles and Greeks and they were all apart and they were all separate and they were all different. Jesus comes and brings us all together. Different races, different nationalities, different opinions, different political persuasions. He brings us all together under the banner of Jesus. He's a great reconciler. And you need to know, you need to know. And, And I talked to people after the first service One lady in particular came up to me just bawling her eyes out. I finally got it today, Pastor Danny. I've been trying my whole life, feeling like I was unsaved. No matter what I did, I felt like I was unsaved. I've been trying hard, so hard, and today I finally realized, oh, I'm standing in right relationship with God because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Not because of me. Because of Jesus. So that, so that, so that. When God looks at me and you, those of us who've who, followed Je- who are following Jesus, those of us who have put our faith in him, when he sees us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus when he sees us. Because, because the Bible says that he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us, took it all on him, so that in Jesus, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So that when, when I fail and I fall short and I feel condemned, Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So that when God sees me, this is why the Bible can use words like holy and blameless and pure in reference to you and me. 
are, am I holy on my own? No. Am I pure? No. Am I blameless? Absolutely not. But when God looks at me, that's what he sees is holy, pure, blameless, all because of Jesus. Verse 19, almost done. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Other translations will say to God. Now, this verse is hard to understand, admittedly, but let me make it, let me help like this. What he's saying here is that one law trumps the other law. So, in your family, if you have kids, you have some rules that you've laid down. I'm guessing, yes, if you have some rules in your household, right? So maybe you have a rule, um, and I think it's a good rule. In our house, we're going to have fun. We're going to have fun. I don't care if you want to have fun. We're going to have fun on a vacation. You will love it. You will smile and laugh for pictures. Right? It's a good rule. That should absolutely be a rule in the house. But let's say you have another rule, and the rule, this rule says be safe. That's a good rule too, right? Now, is it possible that rule number one, have fun, will ever conflict with rule number two, be safe? Parents, is this possible that this could happen? Could they bump into each other? Yes. All right, moms, if, if have fun collides with be safe, which one wins? Come on, say it, ladies. It'll win every time, every single time. Am I right? Have fun until it's not safe. The be safe law always trumps the fun law because having fun is not fun until it's, it's, it's fun until it's not and stuff gets broken, bones and such and stitches and whatnot. Can I get a witness to that, right? And so in this text, what Paul is saying is that the greater law, the law of faith, the law of the gospel has freed him from the Mosaic law with all of its ordinances and rules and really death the law of faith has collided with the law of Moses, and the law of faith has trumped the former law every single time. There's a greater law than the law of Moses, the Mosaic law. And this greater law of faith, Paul says, has set him free to live to God. Not by anything that he has done, but because of what's been done for him he lives freely to and for God, and he says, in light of that truth, I have been, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but now Christ lives in me, and the law I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me, and I do not set aside the grace of God, which is what the Judaizers was trying to get them to do, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for Nada. So he says, how does this work? How does the law of faith trump the Mosaic law and allow me to live unto God? Well, ultimately, and I don't know how this works, in the heavenlies, I have been crucified with Jesus. It's as though I was there with him. So it's no longer, it's no longer my life that's a representation for me, but it's Christ's in me, the hope of glory in me, it's in, in me who lives in me. That means that all of our sins, past, present, 
and future are taken care of in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. So that if there is any accusation against you, and the Bible says that the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, that he is the accuser of the brethren, and he is constantly trying to accuse me and you of what we've actually done, right? Not, not what we, he's not lying about us all the time. He's, he's saying things that we, this man doesn't deserve heaven. This man deserves hell. He deserves damnation. He deserves so, sorrow. He deserves pain. And do you know the response of heaven? Absolutely he does, she does. But I want you just to look to Jesus who was crucified on their behalf. And his righteousness has been applied. The, the word is imputed in, on, into their account. So if there's an account with the righteousness of Danny, there is none in my account for me. Because no matter what I do that's righteous, as Isaiah says, my righteousness is as what? Filthy rags. So all of my efforts at commending myself to God, filthy rags. If you look at my sin account, it's filled with stuff. You look at my righteousness account apart from Jesus, it's filled with nothing, emptiness. But he who knew no sin on the cross where all of my sins and all of my mistakes and all of my failures were nailed to the cross, Colossians says. All of that was nailed to Jesus' cross. And now, now his righteousness, the perfection, the sinless nature of Jesus Christ has been dumped into, imputed into my account so that when God sees my ledger, it just has one big R, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know what that does for you, but for me, that makes me, I grew up Pentecostal, and sometimes they would apparently run around the building for various reasons, and sometimes I felt like going, whoa, I'm going to go take a lap around the building. I won't because that would be weird and people, the ushers have been instructed to tackle anybody who does that. <laughs> but it makes me want to run a lap around the building a little bit because I can't believe how good the grace of God is. Because see, you don't know me, but I know me. And I know that you think I'm perfect in all of my ways. <laughs> no, you don't. But I can tell you something. This week, I might sin. I might make a mistake. And you're saying you should be holier than that, Danny. Aren't you a pastor, man? Come on, get it right, brother. But I'm a man. And I might think a wrong thought, or I might say a wrong thing, or I might have a state of my heart which is not pure or not holy before the Lord, and I'm going to fall short. And here's what happens. If I'm living under the law, the falling short could paralyze me, could create space between God and me. It could make me feel like the power of God, the, the Holy Spirit work in my life is severed and the victory and the joy that I have to walk in Christ has been taken from me. But if I understand that falling short has always, already been absorbed in the cross of Christ and that what I have been given by God is Christ. Christ's righteousness, doesn't, doesn't that embolden me when I fall, when I fail, to get back up, to repent, to grieve that I failed God, but to get up and pursue him and to boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence, not derived from my own worth or self-worth or my own goodness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus. So I want to pray over you because some of you have never known this. You've heard it, but you've never received this. And I just want you to close your eyes for a moment. And if you're, if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian a long time, but you felt as a lot of Christians who've been a Christian a long time, they trend back towards picking up the baggage of I'm going to work my way towards Jesus. Lay it down. Lay it down. 
See, listen, one more thing. I want to do righteous things. I want to do holy things. I don't, this is not a message about don't do righteous things, don't do holy things. This is not that message. I want to do righteous things and I want to do holy things because I am righteous, because I am holy, because of what Jesus has done for me. Do, Do they make me righteous? Do they make me holy? No. Every time, no. But in response to what Christ has done for me, I don't want to go pick up bags of obligation and rules and relationships. I just want to live my life as a living thank you card for what Jesus has done for me. So Father, thank you for your word. I went way too long. Sorry, everybody. But I pray there's there's at least three or four people in this room today who have been living under a tremendous weight of shame and of guilt, condemnation. That they've picked up from some tradition that they grew up in because of the way that God was presented to them. And yes, God is holy and he requires holiness. But because of Jesus, because of Jesus and the cross and what's been accomplished for me, those requirements have been met, not because of what I have to do or what I can do, but because of what he's done on my behalf. And if I could just learn to live in the gospel, not, not just once when I come to you and receive the gospel, but I just live out of the gospel. Freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, Paul says in Galatians. Lord, help us. And for those of us in this room today who do not know you, the beauty of this moment, the space, this time is that we can just say, Lord, I believe. I, b- I believe what I just heard. I believe that you died. I believe that you took the penalty of sin. You, you paid it all. I want to receive that. I want to live in that. I want to experience. I want you to be the forgiver of my sins. I want you to be the father at the end of the road who's out looking for me. I believe that's who you are, and I'm coming to you. No, I'm not perfect but I understand now that it's not that what you're looking for. You're just looking for my heart, and I give it to you. Make me new. Make me clean. I want to follow you my my whole life long. In Jesus' name. Hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If this ministry has impacted you in any way and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, please visit lifepointsa.com slash give to make a donation. We hope you have a great rest of your week and we hope to see you soon at one of our Sunday worship experiences. God bless.